Okay, I'll invite you to turn uh, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. I'll just, uh, so you have a bit of a heads up of um, what to expect in the coming weeks. Um, I'm, I'm not, our family, we're going to be visiting Rosie's family in North Carolina, South Carolina for the next two Sundays. Uh, so we're going to be leaving the end of this week, and Lord willing, we'll make it by the end of this week. And, uh, but we're looking forward to that, but we've, uh, I've arranged to have uh, two, I, I, it'll be two different uh, gentlemen coming. One, Andre, has preached here before from Pastor Bob's church in Montreal, and then he has another guy that he's sending, I believe, the following Sunday. Um, so uh, I trust you'll be well fed by them and look forward to, to hearing how that goes. So, uh, and then after that, we'll pick up back where we are here in Matthew 24. So today we'll be uh, diving back into part two of, setting the, of the, my sermon, uh, Setting the Course to the All of It Discourse. With our primary focus upon the disciples' question now, today we're going to focus on verse three and how it sets us up to properly outline and understand the meaning and timeline of Christ's response which we call the Olivet Discourse and everything that follows to the end of chapter 25. So I'll invite you to stand with me. We're going to read, uh, again, just give us a bit of context. Uh, I'm just going to go back to verse 36 of, of chapter 23. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 23, verse 36. This is the word of Christ. The incarnate word of God. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold." But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is the word of Christ our Lord. You may be seated. So as I said last week, uh, it is pretty much right up to this point, going from Matthew 24, verse 2, now into verse 3, where really I'm going to part ways with the popular dispensational or uh, futurist interpretation of chapter 24. Right? So uh, really, uh, until this point, regarding the pronouncement of God's judgment upon apostate Israel, and the destruction of the temple that we saw was explicitly stated in verse 2, 
I, I believe, at least as far as I understand theologically, we should, I think everybody would be, we would have been going, making it to this point locked hand in hand in agreement with one another. Um, but again, it's at this point uh, of our understanding of the significance of the disciples' question and therefore of the discourse that follows. It's, it's, it's how we understand this question that's going to determine how everything we, we understand and read everything that follows from which we're going to part ways in varying degrees in how we interpret uh, the fulfillment of the prophecies made. And really, depending on the position, there's various positions out there, uh, might not even really come to full agreement all the way to the very end of the discourse. And again, the reason why this has been so important is because I think you can see, depending on the approach, depending on the filter we use, you can see how people would come to the conclusions they come to as, they go, as we're going to go through those texts. And you're going to see, actually, as soon as this, this like heavy, kind of more academic work we've been going through is done, we're going to fly through Matthew 24 because once we have the lens set, it doesn't matter which lens you use, it all becomes you know, really clear according to that lens. Does that make sense? Um, so I'm just I'm trying to establish the lens that I'm approaching this with. Again, and, and again with with today, just to be clear, this isn't going to be an attack on a dispensationalist theology or the futurist interpretation of Matthew 24. It's just it's for the sake of understanding that they, you know, and and for me explaining why don't I go that way? Why do I go this way? It's wanting to help you to understand why I come to the conclusions I come to and why others might come to different conclusions. Uh, the biggest point is that, again, so when I say dispensational, dispensational theology and futurist uh, interpretation, it's because those sometimes can be different things, but in this context, they both, they both apply here. In other words, people, the person who reads this and sees everything that Jesus says is applying to our future, um, will assent, all of them in varying degrees will deny that Jesus' response in the discourse um, that, it, that, that it has anything to do with the temple, right? That there's, it, that's, that's all behind now. Because the, and, and this is why, and it, it's not a bad thing. Again, this is just acknowledging we all have our, our system. But the requirements of that tradition or, or of that system of eschatology which is based on various other scriptures, as all of our, our eschatologies are, will not allow, really, it will not allow you to consider the possibility that Jesus is answering the disciples' questions surrounding the temple's destruction. Um, when they say, tell us, when will these things be? It doesn't fit that system to, for the answer that he gives to be given regarding the temple and, the, and the, the different things that need to take place in that system. So it can't even really be considered. Now, again, I, the reason I want to address this is for clarity, because we all hear different people and we all have different, we all come from different influences. So some would suggest uh, that Jesus did answer that part. So some dis, uh, futurist interpretation would say, Jesus did answer that part of the question as you would see recorded in Luke 21, verse 20. Um, but what they, what they would say is that Matthew, so this is like in the, the, the Tim LaHaye, I think he's the one who did um, the, the big movie, didn't he? So, so he, his, his take is on this, I know, um, is that Jesus did answer the question, but he doesn't answer, but Matthew doesn't include that, is essentially what he says. Matthew and Mark, they, uh, as those who were, right, they, they got to pick and choose as the, those who were writing those specific Gospels. So he, he would say Jesus did answer their question, but it isn't recorded here in Matthew. You have to go to Luke uh, chapter 21, verse 20, to see that. Now we're going to look at that later, but that's what they would say. Um, but as we have seen over the past five weeks, after all the attention and detail that Matthew himself has written in relation to the temple's destruction so far, it would be, I believe it would be totally out of step with Matthew's account 
to just skip over this climactic comp component of Jesus' response with no contextual reason given to us. Um, in other words, I would say the burden of proof for why Matthew would just leave out that answer when Jesus did give it um, lies upon the person who's making that claim. They would have to, they can't just assume that. They, they, you, the, the, they, the assumption of Matthew's, the, of the flow of Matthew is that he is going to answer that, that, that this is about the temple. So we, uh, I want, they, they ought to be the ones proving that point, but they don't usually. Um, another view that would be popular is MacArthur. Uh, I had to do a lot of list, listening to different sermons this week to get an idea of where different people come from. Uh, MacArthur's view well, is that because the disciples mistakenly connect the temple's destruction to the end of the world, which I agree with, um, but he, he essentially says that because of that, Jesus, he skips over their question about the temple in order to focus on the heart of what the disciples' question is, which ultimately has to do with the, the consummation of Christ's kingdom on earth. So he's saying because they, they confuse it, Jesus, he sees through that and he, he answers the, the, the question that really matters, the question that they're really getting at. Um, but again, I just think that assumes that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which was the heart of the old covenant kingdom, to assume it's, uh, it is of no relevance or consequence to the establishment of the new covenant people and kingdom of God, uh, it, it, that's, that's a big assumption to make. As well as if you, if, if you think of Christ's own teachings regarding the, the necessity of the passing away of the old in order to make way for the, the coming of the new, the, the eternal covenant. Um, the, the end is important so that we know that there is a new to start. So I, I see that being conflicting, not just with Matthew, but with, with what Christ has been teaching us about the coming of the new covenant. Uh, the majority, I found, of other that, of, uh, different approaches of a futurist dispensational approach uh, will simply suggest that Jesus just brushes over the leading part of their question because the temple should no longer be of any concern to the disciples. Uh, again, this is similar. Again, there's kind of overlap in these different approaches. But the biggest one I saw was just a simple, like Jesus, he just, he's not going to bother with that. The disciples, of course, they're all concerned about that, but Jesus isn't concerned. And so Jesus, he skips over that and he gets to the good stuff. Uh, and the clearest one I got from that was reading Darby's uh, commentary um, and uh, a lot of the Calvary Chapel uh, preachers. Uh, and so in regards to that, that what, what is being said there, uh, I, there's a couple things I would observe. Of, again, this is explaining why I'm, I'm not persuaded that way. This is, this is again, why, why am I not doing that? Why am I not going there? Um, a problem with this is that it fails to get account for the fact that the destruction of the temple and, and the city and its leaders would most certainly have been of pressing relevance to the early church who was still assembling where? They were still in Jerusalem. The, 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 if we look at Acts 15 and the, in the, with, with the missionary journeys going on, they're coming back to Jerusalem, the headquarters, where the majority of the church still was. So... Uh, in, in, in regards to what was going on in Jerusalem, it would have been, it, it wouldn't have been uh, the most important thing, but it would have been relevant. Um, it wouldn't be just something that is, ah, let's move on. As, uh, secondly, as well as the fact that the, the destruction of the Jewish nation was undoubtedly to some degree of meaningful relevance to the early church, which again was comprised primarily of Jews. The early church was the Jew, they were Jews, essentially, uh, foundationally. And so essentially that would be, to, so to, just to brush it aside, because while that no long, the temple no longer has any, doesn't apply to, me, to them as Christians, like Christ is the temple now, um, and to say, well, so therefore I'm not going to say anything about it, is, that would be like saying to you, because you are now citizens of heaven, if I were, if, if the, say the destruction of Canada, like Canada is like, 
is going to be wiped out. It's going to be annihilated. Uh, you know, this, who, I don't know who. I'm not going to make any predictions. Like, somebody's going to come and to say to you, but don't worry, you're citizens of heaven. And so, and, and just, I'm not going to tell you anything about it. Like, just leave you totally hanging dry. That, that's the kind of, that's what I'm saying. It's still relevant. It's still like, this is like where they live. It's, it's, it's still important to them. It also fails to account for the continued stumbling block and temptation that the temple's standing and ongoing sacrifices posed for those who had been led astray or influenced by the Judaizers, uh, which was a major threat to the early church during those infant years. Uh, and, and so the temple's standing would have bolstered, uh, it would have been bolstered by the fact that the temple was still standing during those years uh, that the, the Apostle Paul was ministering to the church. And again, that's what we see in Acts 15. When they go to Jerusalem, that's, that's what it's about. Because Judaizers were coming out from, it says, among them. Even though they weren't sent by them, they were identified as coming out from among them. And so they needed to clarify that. And so again, I think the, the temple standing, uh, that wasn't, a, that issue continued after 70 AD, but I, you can understand how it wasn't, it, it was no longer the issue after that point. Uh, the, last, the last reason why, I, again, I'm not, I, I think it needs to be given more weight, this, their, the disciples' first question, why I think I can't just ignore their question about the temple's fall, um, is that the temple's destruction would also become one of the common accusations launched against the early church in efforts to stir up persecution against it. So, for example, in Acts chapter 6, verse 13, um, with, with the martyr of Stephen, it says, They set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And in addition to that, I just thought this morning, uh, think of how they taunted our Lord on the cross in Matthew 27, 40, saying, they, they were taunting him, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Would it not be relevant to Christians, again, I'm not saying why this is it's necessary, but do you not think it would be relevant to Christians who were constantly being slandered regarding the temple's destruction, right? It was brought up at Christ's crucifixion. It was brought up at Stephen's being martyred. It's, it's probably going to be brought up again and again as they are being persecuted. It's, it's one of the primary things. Would it not be relevant to them then to be equipped with the whole truth of what Jesus actually said and what he actually was saying was going to happen so as to not grow weary or misled over as the years went on and this temple's not coming down. Do you see how that could be, that could be, that could wear them down as they're waiting year after year is passing and Christ said this is going to happen and they're being mocked for it. So I think there is a relevance here. As I mentioned, the reason, well, yeah, I'm going to come back to again the, just the pastoral side of this, what, what Jesus is giving them here. Um, but I, as I mentioned, the reason they are willing, uh, the, the futurist dispensational side is going to set it aside is not so much because of these things, but again, um, because they come to the text with the, with the timeline of the end times that has primarily come from other texts, other, dis, other texts, uh, whether it's uh, Revelation, Daniel, uh, or Thessalonians, or other, other spots. And so now I'm all I'm um, it's I'm all for reading and interpreting the text before us as we come to Matthew 24 in a manner that is in harmony and complementary to all of Scripture. I think that is good. I think we ought to always be comparing the text before us to other texts. But this a key hermeneutical principle that we must follow. This is something that again, if you're just as your pastor, as your teacher. Of Scripture, this is a principle that I seek to apply by, with God's help and with correction over time as well, consistently to every passage I come to. 
as a hermeneutical principle of how do we interpret the text, especially when approaching prophetic and apocalyptic texts, is first that we allow the parts of Scripture that are more plainly stated and widely understood elsewhere to shed light upon those more difficult and misunderstood texts. Uh, and, 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 all, and of course, as well as the immediate context to give primary weight to what is actually being said there and what is the historical context. But again, when we, after doing all that and we're still saying there's still some debate, there's still, there's still a lack of clarity, it's the whole concept that Scripture ought to, ought to um, interpret Scripture. That the clearer parts, where we are all in agreement, ought to be the ones that we give the weight to when we're interpreting the harder parts of Scripture. Um, and before we allow other distant, more obscure texts to start to influence and shape our interpretation of a passage. Uh, this hermeneutical principle is, is so important that it is actually included in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is our, congregational, our congregation's teaching or doctrinal statement. Um, so in the very first chapter regarding Holy Scripture, paragraph 9 of the, of the Baptist Confession says that the infallible rule for interpreting Scripture, that's a pretty strong statement. It's a pretty important rule. The infallible rule for interpreting Scripture is the Scripture itself. Therefore, when there is a question about the true and full meaning of any part of Scripture, and each passage only has one meaning, not many, it must be understood in light of other passages that speak more clearly. Okay, so just another way of saying what I've just, just told you. So that's in our confession. And so my long-winded point is this. If we have all been in, in agreement on the meaning of the text until this point, then our unity testifies to the importance of granting greater weight to these preceding texts that deal with Israel's rejection of the Messiah and of their imminent judgment that is coming over and against whatever, what other, uh, whatever other context um, and other texts that might be, that is also debated may suggest and inject into the discourse. So what I'm saying is not that we don't consider these other texts throughout Scripture and how they, how they fit in with Matthew 24, but I'm saying we must give primary weight, we must give the, the heavier weight to the text that we are in agreement on in Matthew as we have come through this study and what Matthew has been teaching us to this point. And because of that weight, I can't just set it, brush it off to the side as if the, the disciples' question about the destruction of the temple is behind us now. And this is easier, uh, it's, it's, sorry, so it's not only natural to then observe, as we see the temple context and focus has been developing since chapter 21. We've seen Christ weeping over Jerusalem in chapter 23, verse 37. Declaring the temple desolate in verse 38, and then climaxing in verse 1 to 2 with the disciples' question stemming from Jesus' own, uh, his own statement about the temples being destroyed, not one stone left upon it, upon another. And so it is only natural to then observe in the Olivet Discourse a full orbed answer to the disciples' two part question. With verses uh, 4 to 34, describing the timing of Jerusalem's fall in 70 AD, and then a shift in Jesus' words and tone, uh, beginning in verse 36, to the end of the, of the discourse, focusing upon the latter part of the disciples' question of Christ's coming and of the end of the age. So this is easier to see when we realize that the disciples are essentially asking two questions. Even though in their minds, I agree with MacArthur, they both, they think they're asking the same thing. They, they, the, the, the temple's destruction must be the end of the world. Um, but when we look at the question, they are asking two different questions. First, tell us, he says, when? When will these things be? And then secondly, what? 
what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So first, when, and then second, what? In regard to the second what question, you might be thinking, is there not two questions there? Uh, which I, I, just to briefly answer, um, in the Greek, when, it's, when, when you read it in English, and it says, uh, and of the end of the age, there's, there's not a, an article there. There's only one article uh, in the Greek. So it says, what will be the sign? So, so we have the. It's, the article is telling us, uh, what, what are we talking about? So what will be the sign of your coming and end of the, and end of the age? It doesn't, in the Greek, it doesn't say end of the end of the age. It just says, what will be the sign of your coming and end of the age? Puts them together. So there's two, there's the parts there, but it's assumed to ultimately be the same question. And mo most people are in agreement on that. There, there's no uh, uh, theological debate on that for the most part. So by these when and what questions, they are asking about the time of the temple's destruction and the sign of his coming at the end of the world which, again, we, they wrongly associate with the temple's destruction. They put them together. But again, before we give the disciples a hard time, I already explained last week how natural of an assumption that would have been uh, for the Jews at that time. I noted from Jeremiah 7 how they, the Jews, they already made that mistake with the first temple in chapter 7, um, saying, thinking it was impossible that, that, that God would allow it to be destroyed, and it was. And then we looked at Philo, 20 years before the destruction, who said, uh, he said things like this. He said, for as long as the race of mankind shall last, the revenues likewise of the temple will always be preserved, being equivalent with their duration with the universal world. So due to its world-renowned prominence, the destruction and the end of the temple would have been equivalent in their mind, not only to the end of the Jewish nation, but to the end of the world, it, it, you know, right? It was cosmic types, uh, seismic type destruction. And so although the disciples mistakenly lumped these two questions of the end of the temple and the end of the world together, as if they're referring to the same event, it's not, it shouldn't be difficult to sympathize with them given their situation and their, their prophetic knowledge of, uh, to this point. And so Jesus, of course, knowing that the answer to their questions actually apply to two separate events, he sits down, it says. And by the way, I do the same thing, right? When people, when somebody just, they just ask me a loaded question. And I'm just like, okay, we're going to, this is going to take a while, right? Let's sit down. And so it says Jesus, he, he sits down with them. With the temple, it's in full view. Uh, where, where they were on the East Mount, on the Al Mount of Olives, they could, they could see it all, and that's why the disciples, they're, they're saying, wow, look at this. And then he provides the disciples with this twofold response. Answering first, when will these things be? In verse 4 to 34, and then answering, what will be the sign of your coming and end of the age? From verse 36 to the end. And if you're wondering where does verse 35 fit in there, I believe it serves as a transition between the two, it, as it's going from the first question to the second, verse 35 applies to both. Now in order to wrap this all up, we need to have a little talk about that phrase, the end of the age, uh, particularly with Jesus' repeated references to the end throughout his response. Not only are the disciples confused about the end, but it, understandably many of us today, many Christians can be confused about it. Uh, in our English translation, we see the word end in five places. So that word end in five places, Matthew uh, chapter 24, verse 3 in our text today, verse 6, verse 13, verse 14, and verse 31. I'll show you briefly. We're going to... Look at them quickly today. Verse 3, 6, 13, 14, and 31. But in the Greek, Matthew actually uses three distinct words 
that all end up being translated end. And, and, and understanding the different uses for those words will prove to be helpful to our understanding of the whole discourse. So the first word is, is suntelia. Suntelia, which was used by the disciples in verse 3. And that's the only time we're going to see it in this context. Suntelia is the, is the word that is translated uh, the end of the age in verse 3. Whereas the other word for end that is used is the more common word telos. So suntelia, and then we have this more common word telos, which Jesus uses in verse 6, 13, and 14. And then that last word, I'll mention it, but we're not going to need to come back to it. Translated end is in verse 31. If you look at verse 31, where he says, from one end of heaven to the other, that one's a little more obvious. It comes from a different word, uh, archon, which is in, uh, referring to the limit or boundary of, of the skies there. So it's, I don't think there's any confusion there. Of, the more, of more relevance to our understanding of this passage is the difference between the first two Greek words, uh, suntelia and telos. So again, despite common assumptions, the word telos does not refer to the end of history by default. Uh, in other words, it can, where the context determines it to be, but it is not necessarily a reference to the end of all things. Uh, the, the Greek-English lexicon highlights the meaning of telos as the goal toward which a movement is being directed. Think telos, think telescope. Right? That's where the same word comes from, where you're pointing in. It's, it's the, the thing towards which it is pointed. And it can also it can be translated end, goal, or outcome. And so it speaks of the conclusion to any particular move, um, movement, depending on what you're talking about. Not necessarily, it's not always going to be the end of the trajectory of all history every time it's used. So for example, 2 Corinthians 3, uh, verse 13, it's referring to the end of the Old Covenant. And, and he says, therefore, having such a hope, we, we use great boldness in our speech and, and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. So that they would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. What's that? The old covenant, right? It was coming to an end and, um, and was fading away. Matthew 26, just one more example of its different uses of telos. Matthew 26, verse 57. In Matthew 26, verse 57, then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Uh, the NASB translates it, he sat with the guards to see the outcome. To see, he wanted to see how it would turn out. So that's telos. We see it can have, it's the end of what? We always have to ask, of what? Now the meaning of suntelia, uh, also translated complete or close, uh, with every Greek word, if, 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 it's, if uh, somebody ever tells you a word in Greek that the context is totally irrelevant, they're, they're not telling you the truth. Context always matters, no matter what. Sometimes more or less. But in Matthew, the only other uses of the Greek word suntelia is that it, um, it always consistently applies to the end of history or of the world. So anytime we see suntelia used in Matthew, it's always in the context of the end of all things. So Matthew 13, 39. And this, again, this is the word that the disciples used. So Matthew 13, 39. In the parable of the weeds, Jesus identifies the harvest as the end of the age, where all the weeds are gathered out of the kingdom and thrown into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then verse 40 says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, 
so will it be at the end of the age. Okay? So that's the same suntelia word, end. And then we see it used again just a little further down in chapter 13 in the parable of the net. Starting in verse 47, Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted out the good into containers, but threw away the bad. And verse 49 says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels uh, will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, then the last one, so again, th these are all the places this word is used, is um, besides chapter 24, verse 3, if we look at Matthew 28, 20, we see that Greek word, suntelia, the Great Commission. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, so clearly references to the end of history when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. So whereas we've seen telos used in a variety of ways, suntelia consistently serves an eschatological function in every instance that it is used in Matthew. And so before we finish here, I just want to survey with you and give you a taste of what we're going to be getting into in the Olivet Discourse. We're not going to, we don't have time to dive into it, obviously. But I just want you to see, well, why does this matter? Why am I going through this in so much detail? So again, first we see the disciples' use of Suntelia. We see that first use of the end of the age in verse 3, where they are clearly asking about the end of history then, because they assume that to be directly connected to the, to the temple's destruction, which many people are in agreement on, that, that they make that assumption. When will these things be and what will be the sign of the coming and of the end of the age? The next appearance of the word end, which is now telos, is in verse 6. So again, the question is, is it the same end that he's talking about? That's why I'm bringing this up. Is he speaking about the same end as we have in English? It uses the same word. Or is he speaking about a different end? In verse 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. Uh, so again, the Greek word is, um, is here and the next three verses is more flexible, we see. It's the word telos. So, so they are warned not to expect the end yet. But we must ask, what telos? Right? What outcome does he have in mind here? What end does he have in mind? The outcome about which the disciples asked is what my conclusion is. The end is, that he's speaking of is the, the end about which the disciples asked. So remember, he states, the temple will be torn and flattened. And then they ask, when will these things be? And so they are referring to the temple. And he warns them, because they could be tempted, right? If you, if you think of, after they've heard this now, and I know some people who are more like this than others, but you tell them the end's coming. It's, it's near. Like, your house is going to be wiped out. It's going to, like, war is coming to your house. They're going to be a little flighty. They're going to be a little insecure. They're going to be, like, if you think practically in how that would affect their life. They're going to be flinching at any sign of, pot, of, of, of disruption in society. And that's no way to live. Let alone, that's, that's no way to be building up a church. Right? To be in that kind of state. Not knowing, is this it? And so he tells them that such signs are not the indicator that the destruction is immediately upon them, but it's only the beginning of the birth pains. So in other words, right, the signs are there to be ready. That's what the birth pains tell you. Be ready, right? Get, get your bag packed. If it's not already packed, get your bag packed. Be ready to go when it comes. But not to flee yet. 
right, if possible. There were Christians who were persecuted and who did go and who did bring the gospel long before this, but essentially it's saying, don't just go now just because you can't, but stay, evangelize, share the gospel, proclaim the gospel of Christ, keep encouraging and building up the church where you are, because it's not, the, the end is not yet. And then again in verse 13, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Again, if we're just, so at this point, it, it all depends on where we landed on verse 3, right? Does the, does the first question of the disciples matter or not? If you haven't, if I haven't convinced you on that, you're not going to, then you're just kind of learning about my position at this point. Because at this point, if we're, we're going to be consistent with the, the question that Jesus is answering about the, the, the temple's end, then this would be referring to the Christian's deliverance from the increasing persecution that was brought against them by the Jews. But I, again, given the context, I actually think this is more telling them about being delivered up uh, from the Gentiles. Uh, if you look at verse 9, it says that they will be hated by all nations. And that word nations, ethnos, depending on the context, refers to Gentiles. It, it can be translated Gentiles or nations. And so it's, uh, because, it, because of that verse, I think it is fitting to understand that this particular reference um, to be towards ending the heavy persecution during Nero's reign, especially from 64 uh, to, to 68, AD, who stands out among the others, the other emperors, as being exceptionally cruel and severe in his persecution of the early church until he died in 68, which was just before the war leading up to the temple's destruction in 70 AD, in the temple's end. But again, I think there, even if we're going to be strictly speaking, what is the end that he's talking about? I think he's not, he's not even talking about the temple's end as much as the end of the persecution being described there. That, that intense season of severe persecution that was brought on, um, particularly by, by Nero. Again, we're going to get into that more later. Then in the, next, uh, the very next verse, verse 14, this might be the hardest one. It's, so again, just to give you an idea of how is this even possible to translate it this way. In verse 14 he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And to me this is like the, one of the greatest things, like indicators of why I couldn't see how this was, could possibly already be fulfilled. Are we not still trying to bring the gospel uh, to the whole world, right? Like, what, what's going on there? So further filling in the timing details... He says the gospel must first go forth to all the then known world before the temple is finally destroyed. So again, he's saying, get to work. You, you, like you, the time is ticking. And I'll address this further when we come to it in the coming weeks. But for now, if you find it hard to believe that there was a sense in which the gospel had been proclaimed throughout the whole world by 70 A.D., for now, I simply ask that you be open to the possible meaning as stated by Paul, who in 60 AD, uh, 62 AD, speaking of the transforming power of the gospel in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, Colossians 1, 23, he said, uh, basically he said, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Past tense, he says. Has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So again, we're going to get into those details, but just to get the foot in the door and to see how could I even possibly, how could we possibly see that as being a, a uh, legitimate option? So there we have it. As we've seen, the, the, our interpretation of the Olivet Discourse is largely dependent upon the questions we believe Jesus is responding to, which, as I have labored to show, 
includes both the first question about the temple's destruction and then followed by the second question in reference to the return of Christ and the end of history. So we've reviewed how this is in harmony with the lexical meaning of the Greek word telos itself when Jesus speaks of the end in his discourse, which Jesus employs um, in contrast to the more eschatological word in the disciples' question, syntelia, um, in their second part of the question. So rather than just brushing the disciples' first question aside uh, with no acknowledgement or reference to it whatsoever, I believe, as we have seen throughout Matthew, it is first, it is within the character of Matthew's narrative, as well as secondly, the character of Jesus himself and how he has responded to his disciples' questions and their confusion before. This isn't the first time the disciples kind of had their theology and their expectations of what was to come mixed up. And we've seen how Jesus addressed their questions. Not, not just brushing it aside. It's because of that that it is therefore only natural to understand that this first section of the Olivet Discourse is Jesus' pastoral response. It's not just prophetic. If you think of what they were about to face, this was Jesus' pastoral response to the disciples' first question about when the temple would be destroyed. This would prove in time, again, if you try to put yourself in their shoes, this would prove in time to the early church that Jesus indeed had not forsaken them, but that he had prepared them for the extremely volatile and turbulent road that lay before them leading up to the fall of Jerusalem, so long as they remained in that city and escaping the judgment and the ruin of, a pot of their apostate brothers who would not listen to them. And so having worked our way through Matthew, observing its anticipation of the Olivet Discourse, you might be relieved to know the course has now been fully set for us to finally step foot in the actual discourse itself. It might be, it's kind of crazy to believe we actually haven't, we're, we're right on the cusp, but we actually haven't gone in with two feet into the discourse itself. So now um, the grounds have been laid for, in our study to do so. And like I said, now that we've laid the groundwork, uh, when we return, when I return in three weeks, um, I have one more block to lay. One more block I want to lay that will be helpful for you, and that's regarding the meaning of this generation in verse 34. When he talks about this, it being in this generation, verse 34, I want to lay that down for us, but that's in the, the discourse. And so once we've done that, as I said, we're going to hit the ground running uh, in our work and work our way through the Olivet Discourse kind of at the same pace we normally would, passage by passage each week, um, which really basically means, if you just so you have an idea of the schedule here, where, where this is all going, um, Lord willing, that'll have us completing the entire discourse at the end of chapter 25, uh, just in time to celebrate, celebrate Christ's first advent uh, in December when we look to, to celebrating Christmas together. So um, again, the, the, the discourse itself, if you, if, we'll, we'll read it maybe when, we, when I return, all the way to the end of 25. It's, it's a lengthy message. He, he devotes a lot of material in Matthew to this. So it's very important, obviously, for us, for the early church and for us. Now, before I let you go, that's what I, I want to just again, touch on that as I have in the past weeks. Well, so what does this mean for us? Right? I've given you a lot of information, a lot of maybe theological, uh, textual uh, knowledge. But what does that matter to you? Right? What does that matter to me? What does that matter to us this week, to our neighbor? Um, I've, and as I said last week, it's, gonna be, it's, it's not... The application of fulfilled prophecy is very simple, yet it's incredibly powerful. So Isaiah, and I'm just going to use Isaiah 44 as my example for us. 
In Isaiah 44, he talks about, he's prophesying the coming of the Lord's chosen one of the Messiah. He says in verse 3, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, so he's talking about God's blessing upon the Jews who would believe and, and, and enter God's and, and uh, take up the mantle of the kingdom. And then verse 5, he also prophesies, this one will say, I am the Lord's, and another will call in the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. He's saying, which is referring to Gentiles, taking on the name of the Lord upon themselves. And then verse 6, Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. He's giving a challenge here to the false gods and to the false prophecies. And to those who would say, this, you know, this is going to happen at such and such a time. He's, he's challenging them. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Well, so what, right? Verse 8. He says, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. So again, why does it matter that God has prophesied things again and again and then it happened in our past? And why does that matter to me today? Fear not, nor be afraid. For I have not, have I not told you from of old and declared it? Right? Have I, have, has my word not proven to be true and reliable time and time again? Is there a God besides me who can thwart my plans? There is no rock. I know not any. You, you who place so much confidence in this religion or that religion. Right? He's saying, Let, let's just sort this out once and for all. You, or you who are caught in between the fence. You're not sure. Like you hear, maybe your kids here, and you hear the, of the, this faith that you're supposed to have and the faith of your parents, but you're, what about, what about my friends or you know, these other people and their other beliefs? You who put so much confidence in your own plans for the future, right? We, we, we live this way, like we're, we're, as, as we're so confident that we know this is going to happen at this time, this is going to happen at that time. Lay it all out on the table. Why don't you write it all down? Right? You who say that gender is fluid, or that religion is dead, or you who say that the world is going to look like this or look like that in the future or that it's going to, right, that the certain gases are going to cause this to happen. Write it down. Let's get this all in writing as a matter of historical record. And we can do this, by the way, with all the cults, right? And all the, all, pretty much every cult is based on a false prophecy of Christ coming at this time or that time. And it's in writing. And you can go back and you can look and see that they said it was coming and then the time came and then, okay, no, we've got to change up. Maybe I was wrong. We've got to do this. Get, let's get our, again, maybe you're not prophesying that, but again, I, all of us, you live, if you're not living in devotion to the, to the only true and living God, you're living your life in faith in something. You're making your plans of the future based on something. And so, Let's put those, those prophecies down. Let's put those, those, that word, those things that you're trusting in, down so that there is no confusion or manipulation when it comes to pass or it comes to not pass. 
and let the next generation consider these things and testify who truly knows and determines the beginning from the end. So stop trusting your future to your mere feelings to your, or to your friends or to your teachers. Not, and don't trust your future just to your parents alone nor to your church. Go to the historical record of God's Word. Consider His claims and weigh them against the witness of history. And you will come to learn and believe that there is no God besides Him. And there is no other rock of salvation. I know not any. Okay? So if you, if you haven't do that, can you do that for me? Let's pray. Lord God, we, we hear your challenge. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Lord, nobody's standing up here. Uh, nobody's, nobody's, um, nobody's responding to that call. I pray and I trust that by your word today, we've been humbled by you as we consider, again, just your, your eternal knowledge and your sovereign power over all things, over all history, where we have been and where we are today and where we are going in the future, and our mouths are stopped. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken today and uh, that you have shown us um, the trustworthiness of your word. And that we can see in the response of the Olivet Discourse, again, your care for your people, that your word is, that your prophecy is not just about showing off um, and, you know, comparing you to, other, to the other false gods and how they all fall short, but your, your prophecy is, is, we see your love for your people in it as well and, and your care, your tender care and shepherding for your people that we would not be as Peter says, that you will not be shocked when persecution comes upon you. That we, will, that we would be ready and armed with your word as the people of God. And Lord, we know, that, and, and, may this, and we know this passage and many other passages, Lord, uh, prepare us as well for the many things that we're going to face as the church in the 21st century. Lord, I pray that you would embolden your people. Give us, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we may be able to discern these things and that we would be able to understand the times that we are in and to see where you are at work and where your kingdom uh, is, is coming, Lord. And that we would, you would make us bold witnesses, that we would, as, as, as Isaiah um, mentions, and, and, uh, that we, having seen these things, that we, having looked into these things in your word and how you fulfilled it, that we would be your witnesses to the ends of the earth, declaring these things. That Christ, the rock of salvation, would be exalted. And that every other kingdom, every other king who raises himself up against every other little prime minister, every other little uh, MP, every other uh, teacher, every other, whatever it is, every, uh, every parent, whoever would seek to raise themselves up in their truth, in their authority, that they would fall and be crushed under the weight of Christ and of his truth. Lord, I pray that you would use us as witnesses, that again, that that falling and crushing would be by your grace and mercy through repentance, and that we would, yet, we would still yet have the opportunity to see uh, those in our life um, who, we, who we testify to, that we would see the manifest power of the gospel uh, changing lives, um, turning people around and uh, to seeing the light. And that, Lord, we would walk in that power ourselves now, God. I pray for the church here that, uh, as Paul said in, in, for, in Colossians 1.23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast in that which you, already, in that which you received, Lord, that we would 
um, continue in the power that we have received in Christ, putting off the deeds of the flesh, of the sin that once held us captive and walking in the freedom uh, and the glory and the, uh, of the righteousness of Christ that is ours by faith. God, we ask that you would do this for the sake of your Son, that he would be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.